lady stands there in a barrel door and she is straight as a willow wand. This song is The Two Magicians by Red Sky July and will feature on the band's forthcoming album. Singer and co-founder Shelley Paul is my guest on Fistful of Chords this week. Shelley was one half of Alicia's Attic, alongside her sister Karen. The pair wrote a string of hit singles in the late 90s, and recorded platinum and silver-selling albums. After the band disbanded amicably in 2001, both sisters went on to become successful songwriters for other artists. Shelley performs in Red Sky July alongside her husband, Texas guitarist Ali McAlain. I went to primary and secondary school with Shelley in Barking, where we both grew up. So Shelley, thanks very much for agreeing to do this. It's my pleasure, Jimmy. Very nice to see you. You too. Now, we went to school together. Yeah. So you grew up in Barking. What was it like for you growing up in Barking? Well, I'd like to say something else, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I didn't actually like growing up in Barking very much. I thought it was a tough place to grow up, actually. And I always had kind of, I don't think I fitted in. I had lovely friends and I believe our school was actually really good. And I always felt like a slight outsider. So I was very happy to move on. But I'm kind of glad for who it made me and what it instilled in me, which I think was a little bit of streetwise. (laughs) I I read the other day that, I didn't know this, but so when you were 14, so when we would have all been going to school together, you used to go to White City to, to, tell me about that job you had. Yeah, my first ever job in the business was I was the band for the BBC director training courses. So, you know, we'd turn up the directors, the cameramen, the sound men, they'd all be training and we'd be the band. So we'd play through a song and then they'd light us and then we'd have to wait for another hour while they set up another shot. So, yeah, it was great practice and it was a really good way of learning your stuff. Must have been actually a very good experience, because it's not just like performing live, but actually doing something where you're not in control and you're having to sort of perform to these adults and sort of stop and start. Yeah, I guess it's like acting really, isn't it? You you turn it on, you turn it off and you, you know, you wait around, you learn patience, you learn about the business and it's not all about you and your performance. So that was another really big lesson early on, you know. But I remember, you've got quite an interesting background in that, I mean, I remember you and Karen performing at school. We all saw you. I mean, you were very... Oh, I'm sorry, theatric. Jimmy. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yes, I, I, I can... It's all coming back. And, and, of course, we knew about your father. It was Brian Paul from Brian Paul and the Tremolos. And you might assume, well, then, of course, they slipped into the music business. But there was like a nine-year apprenticeship you had. It wasn't an... You didn't just fall into the business, did you? No, I think it it possibly could have been harder. You kind of have a name already. Do you know what I mean by that? It's not really um you couldn't be you couldn't stand on your own and say this is what I do. You've already got some kind of tag or somebody thinks they know about you. You know, not in a big way, you know, we we were quite low key, but business is quite small when it comes to music. My sister and I made a studio. We learnt to use all the machines ourselves right from the right from the off. We didn't have to rely on anybody. And we just sent our demos to every single record company there was. And eventually, eight years later, everyone must have thought there was proper shit before that. Eight years later, a lawyer heard them and said, I'd like to represent you. And he got us a deal. There was a Dave Stewart element, is there somewhere? 
Well, that came after. We'd been signed, we'd written our album, and our um, MD of Mercury Records, he said, who would you most like to work with in the whole world? So my list was like Prince and all the people that you'd never going to work with. And Dave Stewart was one of them. So we went to meet Dave in his place in Covent Garden. Totally got on with him. He knew what we wanted to achieve. And we did our first album with him as a producer. You know, we'd been signed for a good six months before that and worked with a couple of other producers. Like we'd worked with uh, Peter Collins, who'd done things like the Rush albums and stuff like that. So he was more progressive and we thought that might be an interest in Mary. And um, we'd also worked with Trevor Horn, again, not quite right. And Dave just kind of fit, fit in when we really needed him to, you know. It was really, really lucky, actually. And so that period of sort of the nine years getting an apprenticeship was, does that mean you were a better songwriter by the time you had your first album than you would have been if you'd had a record deal five, six years earlier? No, do you know what, Jimmy? I think, if I'm really honest about it, I think when you're that age, you don't have fear of anything. So you just write really natural and the naivety sounds better sometimes. I actually think as a songwriter, what happens is you, you know, you go to a box of tricks that you know you can tap into when you need something. There is often a, a quite a formulaic um, process. I think you learn too much. We were probably writing better songs or more interesting songs back back in the early days. So was there a much of a sense of relief? Uh, there must have been a huge excitement, obviously, when you had that first record, but was there also a sense of relief? Relief? Oh, I don't know. Let me think. Well, I'm trying to think what I felt. Do you know, again, Jimmy, I was fearless. I didn't really give a shit about anything back then. I probably wouldn't have cared. I'd be, you know, if someone didn't like it, I'd be like, ah, whatever. Ah. You know, I really did feel like that. I don't now. <laughs> I'm scared of everything now. But back then, I, th I don't know if I felt relief. I just kind of wanted people to hear our funny little songs that we wrote in our attic. And, you know, I thought they might be fun somehow. I thought they might be good somehow. So there, it, there wasn't really a lot more than that. You know, we were, we were very ambitious, but ambitious to learn and ambitious to travel and see things and, and put them to music. And what was it, how much, um, what was it like being in a, in a band with your sister? Was that very helpful in terms of, you know, if you were away from home for a long time at a young age or being on the road and having difficulties, is that very helpful? I guess being in a band with your sister is like a blessing and a curse, really. Um, you know, she was my big sister, so she used to tell me off about absolutely everything. But fundamentally, we were sharing this really amazing time you know we were going everywhere we were a priority for mercury records we were um traveling the world and and singing our songs to everybody and you know we'd find ourselves in scenarios where we'd just look at each other and we couldn't believe what we'd done or what we'd achieved or what stupid things we were doing so i'd say that being able to share that with someone is really special actually and when did you start writing songs of them probably from like five years old. <laughs> yeah, embarking, Jimmy. I was embarking. I did, um, I think the first song I... Oh, do you remember a girl called Athena Mellis? Yeah, of course. I don't remember Athena very well. Well, I wrote my first song with her when I was like seven or eight. And um, she used to live over the back to me. So my dad had given me a Casio keyboard just to mess about with. And our first song was called... Oh, it went, you keep on knocking, boy, but the engine still my heart is closed. <laughs> um, and I still remember it. 
and we were so proud of ourselves. That's great. And so when you, oh, you've been writing songs with your sister for you know a few years, and then you have a platinum album, and then you have to go and do it all again. You have to write another album. Did you have all the material already, or was it? Oh my goodness, we've got to write another album in six months. We had a few ready because we were already on tour, and we, you know, we were travelling a lot, and we were doing a lot of shows. So we were in Europe and Southeast Asia and the Americas. So we'd already written a lot on the road because you're living that life. You're not seeing your friends. You're not seeing your family. So you're just immersed in it. So by the time we got home from our big long stint, it was about a year, I think. We'd kind of had the second album already. And it wasn't the difficult second album that everyone speaks of, probably because we didn't have enough time to freak ourselves out about it because we were just so busy. So, so yeah, no, we were lucky to be able to go and see things and, and turn them into songs while we were on the road. So, of course, you, at the time you got, you reached prominence, it was the time of sort of Britpop and also sort of the Spice Girl, Spice Mania. Where, do you, where did you fit into all of this? Oh, I don't know. Um, I remember once being really crazy embarrassed about we were backstage at a, a festival somewhere and there were lots of bands about and one of the band's members came up to me and sat down and I had my, my Walkman at the time, I had that on and he said, oh, what are you listening to? And it was We Are Siamese, if you please, the the soundtrack to Lady and the Tramp. And he was like, oh. And I just remember thinking, hmm probably should have told him it was something else I, I don't know how we fit in I think we were just making very quirky pop and it was possibly a good time for that I don't know yeah well not fitting in is actually not a bad yeah, thing maybe it was quite edgy sort of humorous some of the so I remember I am I feel being quite sort of sassy I want to bite his head off and things like that very funny yeah I did yeah at the time I really did well that was about a particular person yes it was, absolutely. I won't go into that. But did, was it sort of conscious that you wanted to have that edge or was it just the way you were? Well, I think mostly things musically just came out the way they came out. You know, we sometimes feels like you don't have much control over it, which of, of course you do. But, you know, lack of fear and, and youth is a brilliant cocktail for writing songs. Um, occasionally we'd be asked to go and write a single, another single. But, you know, that was a challenge. Quite liked, quite liked a challenge. Do you know, I'm, I'm really trying to find something to say that sounds like we had some kind of, you know, struggle or tension, but it was, we just had the best time. We loved our label. Our label loved us. We worked really hard. They worked really hard with us. It was a really good team. Our managers were fantastic. The whole team around us, our publishers, um... Yeah, I've, I'm afraid I haven't got any bad news for you, Jimmy. So about 2001, you and Karen decided to fold Alicia's Attic. Yeah. And you said that was because you had different directions you wanted to go into. Could you explain a little bit about that? I think we'd just taken it as far as we could go. You know, when you just kind of think, I don't know what we could do next musically. And I think we would be going back on old ground or we'd be trying to live up to something that we possibly weren't feeling anymore it was definitely the healthy thing to do at that time 
And did it help that you both had, you said you'd been with Massive Attack for a year and Karen was riding for other, you were all, it wasn't like a big leap? No, it definitely wasn't a big leap. We were already, you know, writing with other people all the way through Alicia's. Um, we both wanted to explore other things musically as well. So really natural progression if we didn't want to be in the band anymore to just continue writing, continue the relationship with our publishers. They knew what we could do and we just did it. And you've, I mean, you've written with some amazing list of songwriters. I've got a list here. Janet Jackson, Massive Attack, Ronan Keating, Mark Ronson, Gary Barlow, Paloma Faith, Sophie Ellis-Bexter, Will Young. The list goes on. They're the old ones. Yeah, and then there's a, and then there's a new generation of... Yeah. How did you get into that? And how different is it to, to write for other people rather than yourself? Well, it's a whole other discipline, writing for other people. Um, you take you have to take yourself and your ego out of the process you which is in itself is you know something you have to learn if you've been the artist and it's been all about you you go into a room and it's all about that artist it's what they need to say what you try and enable them to be the artist they want to be um you know also you kind of psychologically assess the room you know uh, am I the grown-up here am I the leader should I sit back do they know what they're talking about um you know, what do we need out of today? Do we need a hit or should we just go with the flow? Do we start from scratch? You know, there's a whole list of things to consider before you even get to writing a song. So what kind of songwriting briefs do you get? Yeah, briefs are, the briefs are hysterical. You know, what was the last one? Um, oh my gosh, I've got it on my phone. But it said something like, Lana Del Rey meets the Nine Inch Nails or something like that. If you read a brief, you just go, okay, let's, throw that out the window and just do what we want. If someone says to you, we want a song from Janet Jackson, do you have any contact with them or any, is it just uh, done completely separately? Do you write with them sometimes? How, how does it work? Well, that all depends. Usually the Janet one was um, my publishers had heard a song that I'd done with um, a writer called Tommy Danvers, Tommy D. And um, she thought it would be good for Janet. So she, she's, she was at Sony at the time. She sent it to... Janet's people, they loved it. And so that was it. We were faceless writers. Nowadays, more so, I go in the room with the artists. It's a lot easier to write when you, you've got some kind of connection, I think. You start off kind of with a cup of tea, like, oh, what do you want to write about today? It's like getting to know you, you know. So it's, a, it's an important thing, I think, to be face-to-face. Like doing a Zoom write, which I've been doing for this last little lockdown. Oh, my gosh, it's so hard. Really? Yeah. Because you haven't got the physical yeah. contact or you they can't read the nuances. When you're in a room face-to-face, you know, there's a, a connection, there's a vibration happening, there's a little bit of magic in the room. And, and if you don't feel that, it's quite difficult, actually. Um, but needs must. So were you Zoom writing before lockdown or is this because of lockdown? Yeah, because of lockdown. Oh, no, I'd never do that, Jimmy. I, I, I like face-to-face if I'm writing for someone, I want to know about them. I want to know what they need to say. I want to get involved, you know. And what have been the best and worst experiences of that? <laughs> okay. How do we do it? Yeah. Now I'm trying to think of my best ones. To be honest, I do have my, my kind of, uh, what do you call that? Like comfort people. Having a laugh is crazy important in my, in my book. And what's the worst experience you've had? No, I know what it is, but I can't tell you. 
And it would be crazy unprofessional of me to uh, tell you my bad ones. Uh, so I'm going to plead the fifth. Oh, to be with you. This song is To Be With You by Red Sky July and will feature on the band's forthcoming album. After Alicia's attic were dissolved, Shelley released her debut solo album Hard Time for the Dreamer in 2005. Three years later she formed Red Sky July with husband Ali and American singer Charity Hare. So I'm going to come on to Red Sky July in a minute but before that I just wanted to quickly talk about it. So you, after a bit of time away from Alicia's attic mm-hmm. you then had your solo album Hard Time for the Dreamer which had a great uh, did very well despite a very little um, sort of publicity how much how nice a feeling was that really oh it was lovely by that time I'd just met Jack Savaretti we'd been working here a lot the whole thing felt really nice and I we didn't need to spend a lot of money on it my label were just fantastic even like my MD of the label, he came and played bass in my band and it was all really kind of family orientated. I loved doing that album. It just felt like a bit of a holiday from life, really. And the success must be quite rewarding of that for, a, for an album like that. Jimmy, I don't know how you gauge success. I don't well, know. I suppose people saying it, it's quite critically acclaimed. Yeah, it was critically acclaimed. The only way I can really gauge success properly is for if I listen to it now, do I go, oh, God, I wish I hadn't done that? Or do I kind of go, huh, yeah, that, I remember where I was then. And I still like where I can still remember the person I was when I did Hard Time. But when I listen to Alicia's stuff, it's hard to identify with them. I'm not really that person anymore. But saying that I love the songs they're really beautiful and so special to me but they're kind of locked in time so Red Sky July um so it's alternative country what what is alternative country I think instrumentation plays a huge part in how we categorize country or alternative or folk music I mean country music has actually changed a lot since we started the band in 2007 um country's now pop isn't it with like elements of pop rock really but the old school country that we love in this house like Graham Parsons Emmy Lou Harris and nowadays Bonnie Prince Billy it would now be called alternative country um we used a lot of pedal steel on our first album which immediately puts you into the alt country scene I think even though our pedal steel player used it like a synth almost and layered it up and used long reverbs and sonically that's for me that's the fairy dust on the top but it it also does make it country right now this new album though has traveled back in time a bit and gone a bit folk i think they call us alt folk at the moment um but i really don't want to think of what instruments we can and can't use to be authentic in a genre because it feels like it just puts you in a cage and stops you from using what might be the most natural or interesting um, instrumentation. So um, what made, what was the um, process of getting into the band with Ali, your husband? Yeah, well, he was cheap. <laughs> no, he's, he's one of the best guitarists I know. And, you know, we live in the same house, so it was inevitably going to spill over into normal life. Um, but how Red Sky started out was that one day I was snooping through Ali's projects on the computer and uh, he'd done this really beautiful flat-picking idea. So I wrote a song over it. A song came quite instantly, um, but the song had like an interlaced two-part harmony. 
um, I played it to him and we were both like, should we just make an album of stuff like this? This would make us happy. And that's when I called my friend Charity, who at the time was fronting a band. They were called The Aliorons with uh, Dave Roundtree, the drummer from Blur. And I sent it to her and I said, do you want to just sing this harmony on this and just see what it sounds like? She was like, yeah, uh, sure. Um, she did and it sounded amazing. And that was the birth of Red Sky July. We all loved it so much. It went from being a beautiful side project to a full-time gig. So um, I wanted to take you back to, you were about to record your first album with Red Sky July and an absolutely horrendous thing happened in your life. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so kind of briefly, um, Ali, husband, her, one September morning had a grade five subarachnoid brain hemorrhage in our house. Um, I just kind of woke up that morning and it was really eerie quiet and for some reason I was shouting for him in a bit of a panic because he wasn't answering and he was always in bed next to me. We always woke up together and f for some reason he wasn't. So I ran into the front room and uh, I s he, he wasn't breathing. He was on the sofa and his whole body had shut down, basically. He was a different colour and his tongue was hanging out and I was trying to punch him on the chest and trying to wake him up and I couldn't wake him. And he wasn't breathing at all. So um, I phoned the ambulance and while they were on their way, they were talking to me all the time saying, can you breathe into his mouth? And I was screaming, no, nothing's happening. He's not breathing, he's not breathing. Um, and eventually they got there and they intubated him in our front room um, and they took him away to hospital. And basically he didn't wake up for about six months. And when he did, he didn't know who any of us were. He didn't know where he was, who he was. You know, he'd also had two front lobe strokes, which affects everywhere you live in your own head and well, affects everything, all your risk-taking and behaviour. So in short, that was truly the most hideous, traumatic experience for, for all of us. That was just before we were going to do the first album, we'd, the Red Sky album. We had all the funding in place. It happened three days, I think it was three or four days before we were about to start. Um, I wrote a book about it called The Miracle with my friend Tony Barrell. Firstly, to, I needed to get it all out because it was so traumatic. But we'd gone back to the hospital and it was actually the, our consultant that had said we were more likely to win the lottery than have an outcome like that. And he'd never seen an outcome like that. And it was a miracle. So we were really blessed. Um, and I must remember that more when I'm telling him off for something stupid. So after this awful shock, Ali has to undergo a huge rehabilitation programme. How did that experience change your relationship? He, lo he changed quite a lot as a person. After that, we just kind of relearn each other. And he's not the same. I'm not the same. We're definitely very, very different. But you kind of learn to love a different person. So after Ali's initial recovery, you then went into the studio to record that first album. He had to learn how to play guitar again. How much of an achievement for him was it to make that record? Well, it was, re it was a huge achievement. He relearned everything and, and made that album, yeah. It was totally remarkable, really. Lifesaver, yeah. And so the band has had, you know, four or five albums. Like the second one, I had a few sort of songs on there that were quite personal based on that experience. Yes, on the second album, um, I did a song called Here Then Gone. 
the morning that it happened really stuck out to me so much. Everything else by then had become fight or flight. You know, you were you're pushed to make this awful thing better. So I went into proper doing mode. But the whereas the morning of became like one of those weird kind of slow motion dreams. Still, I still really remember it, and I still wake up thinking about it now. Um, like the physical things, the his coffee cup on the table still with a little bit left in it and he left me a voicemail and I could hear his voice and he was there and he was talking to me and god I really needed to write that one too <laughs> it's that album was another lifesaver we needed to expel that trauma and so how do you guys write do you write together the two of you each writing scenario is really different um and um, especially for Red Sky July, I sometimes like to write by myself and Ali likes to write by himself too. And then we sort of come together and, and merge each other's work. But then, you know, sometimes we'll sit in the room together and write from scratch. I suppose it really depends on the day, to be honest, and how you're feeling. But Red Sky July feels like a small and intimate project. So we sort of, we both go into ourselves for that one. Whereas other projects I do are much more outward and, and more collaborative yeah, I've read a quote from you saying something along the lines of the songwriting for other people is the day job, but where you get your heart and soul into the music, it's, it's Red Sky July. Yeah, I think it's really personal. And I don't think even what I say is really personal. I just think I really care about it. And I feel like it's mine, Ali's and Haley's and only ours. And you also write for TV, don't you? Yes. More than anything, I love doing music to visual. It's so inspiring to have something shown to you and then you put a soundscape to it and you make it sound like it looks. It's really interesting for me to not have to come up with those colourful things in my imagination. I'm getting shown it and it's really easy and it feels really good to make. Tell me about the new album that's going to be coming out this year. We don't know whether we're bringing it out this year or February. So we're just in talks at the moment. We're probably going to put it on hold for the lockdown because we need to tour. Red Sky July are a touring band, so we actually do need to tour. Um, We had to cancel the tour because of coronavirus, um, but that's okay. We can redo it in February. So I think we're going to wait till February. It's called... um, it's changed titles twice. It was called Parallel Universe, and now it's called um, Misty Morning, which sums up the whole sound of the record really well. We've got a new member. Um, her name's Haley Glennie Smith. She's actually been in the music business for for years, and she's an amazing singer and songwriter. Um, I've watched her solo gigs before, and always thought yeah, I'd love to work with her at some point. Um, and our charity um, had twins and decided to move back to the States to be with her family. Um, you know, we went through it. Could Red Sky July be a duo? Could we do this by ourselves? But the harmonies are so important on this project, so I wanted to find someone else. She can literally do anything with her voice. She's one of the most beautiful folk singers I've heard, so I was really pleased when she said she wanted to join us. And it made making this album even more exciting, having a voice like that to work with. I've spoken to a number of musicians recently who are very worried about what's going to happen with the music industry in the, with the fact that most people now, the way you make money is by performing rather than making records. And now there's no way back at the moment that's clear from having gigs. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? 
we did a Zoom gig for the Green Note, one of our favourite venues in Camden, and and that actually felt quite nice. You know, they put a PayPal thing up and people can pay the performers, but I don't know how it's going to work ongoing. The touring industry is really suffering, actually. And if you're young and you haven't yet made your money in music and you're relying on those local gigs, then it's a scary, scary world out there at the moment. It's really hard for the the companies too, not just the musicians, but the tour companies, the gear companies. I mean, they employ so many people and it's such a big industry. Um, But no one can work at the moment and we can't see when we can get back to work either. But we will. um, But who knows how far in the future that's going to be and how long can the companies exist without work? It's, It's really tough. But equally, people are being really innovative and, you know creative people will put their minds to it and make other ways I'm sure until we can get back to normal and and start having some fun again very difficult question in the current circumstances finally really what is the future for Red Sky and July and Shelley Pool well future for Red Sky July is um, Misty Morning the new album that comes out next year and a tour future for Shelley Pool is actually going to do a solo album number two at some point I don't know when, it's not in the schedule, Um, but I'm going to keep writing those hits, Um, that's my main priority, and working with bands that I can help and mentor, doing a bit more production as well, Um, and the the film stuff, which I'm really interested in developing more this year. So yeah, that's the big plan, Jimmy. We are a little bit fire. This song is We All Wanted Sunshine by Red Sky July and will feature on their forthcoming album Misty Morning. Thanks to Shelley for giving up her time and revealing so many interesting tales from her career. I'm sure there are many more to follow. Thanks also to Mark Taplin and Helen Breeden. Until next time, goodbye.